0: G'day, Gideon Rosner here. Now, before Looking Forward get started, I wanted to talk to you about a new podcast being brought out very soon by the Institute of Public Affairs. It's called The Heretic, Inside Peter Ridd's Fight for Freedom of Speech on Climate Change. Now, this is a project I've been working on for some time, and it tells the inside story about what Peter Ridd said about climate change and the Great Barrier Reef, how James Cook University tried to shut him down, and most importantly of all, how Peter fought back in court. It's being released to IPA members this Friday, the 15th of May. So if you're interested in checking it out, please do head to ipa.org.au. And now, on with Looking Forward. Hello and welcome back to the IPA's Looking Forward, a weekly podcast of debate and discussion about politics and ideas. Today we've got some of the big issues. We're talking about the three stages through which the federal government will shepherd the country out of the lockdown. We'll be looking at the international experience of COVID-19, particularly in Sweden, where people don't tend to be so much worried about whether it might not succeed in its efforts, but that it actually will, and it might actually be a poster child for the herd immunity strategy. We'll be looking at that, plus the future of conservatism as we reflect on the life of Sir Roger Scruton and the many conservative voices that are trying to take meaning out of the current pandemic. All that and more, including our usual books and culture section, where our panelists will be looking at, of course, The Last Dance, the Michael Jordan documentary that's been sweeping the world well, like a virus. Uh, A show called Normal People Out of Ireland, which is unbelievably a romantic show that's going to be featured on uh, Looking Forward, and also a game about the birth of English football or soccer, as it's called in Australia. Uh, To make that discussion, discussion happened I have with me of course my co-host from RMIT University and adjunct fellow at the IPA Dr Chris Berg. G'day Scott. Great to have you Chris as always and a frequent guest always welcome in the IPA's home studios Andrew Bushnell. Cheers Scott. Well, in fact, as from next week, Andrew, I could, I can actually invite you over for a beer, so we'll, we'll see what happens.
1: There's <laughs> a back of, in the pressure street. on that promise. <laughs> that's, that's right.
0: Um, but we will, we will come to that in a moment. Uh, don't forget, this podcast is a production of the Institute of Public Affairs. If you're not already a member, please do go to ipa.org.au to see how you can join, donate and get access to many of the member-only benefits, including The IPA review, which we'll be talking about a bit later. But first of all, a visual gag for those watching on YouTube. I am holding up, of course, the three stage plan, and I'm moving it slowly up to indicate that we're going to move through the three stages over the next month or two. I do worry about any plan that can be. Put onto one page, um, it's a step forward, but also a frustrating lack of detail. Chris Berg, what did you take out of Friday's announcements and the reactions of the state premiers thereafter? Well, well
1: that's right, Scott, and um, uh, you're right that there's it, it's a, those plans are a strange combination of vagueness and specificity. We know precisely how many people are allowed into our house, but we know very little about how huge swathes of the economy are actually um, supposed to function so for instance we know that um, in New South Wales on Friday in Victoria on Wednesday we can have five people over to our house family and friends Um, uh, strangely we weren't able to do that over the weekend but that's a different story Um, we know in what stage cafes and restaurants will start to open. They're already starting to do so in Western Australia, for example. But we know very, very little about the stage return to work for white collar workers. We know very little about how, um, what COVID safe workplaces are supposed to look like. And I know that Scott, you're thinking really deeply about this from the IPA's perspective. And um, I'm certain that there are people thinking really hard about this from the RMIT perspective as well. Um, uh, nonetheless, we are on the way. Um, so so Dan Andrews announced, as I said, on Wednesday, Phase Phase 1 will um, launch and on Friday, New South Wales, Phase 1 will launch as well. I might throw to Andrew, though. How, how do you respond to these, these um, incredibly specific yet at the same time frustratingly vague um, promises of a return to freedom?
2: They are vague, um, but then I go, of course, this is the, the Commonwealth's top level Um, uh, directions. So, um, you know, some of the points in there actually note like in line with state and territory plans. Um, So it's sort of been left to the states and territories to to fill out some of the detail, which I guess is fair enough. But I I, I think the point that you've made there that's that's really important is that um, they have to be vague because the entire um, pandemic response has been about uncertainty, not certainty. Um, and that's why it's, it's been very strange, actually, um, that we keep hearing this refrain of uh, we need to follow the science. Um, because following the science f- implies that there is um, certainty around the data and that that leads to um, certain policy conclusions.
1: The following um, the science implies that there is a science to follow.
2: Yeah, whereas actually what's what's, what's happened, or at least it seems to me, um, is that we made the decision to shut down originally based on something akin to the precautionary principle. It wasn't necessarily called that, but the idea was that so uncertain were we about the the extent of the risk, and all we knew was that, or thought we knew, was that there was this large-scale systemic risk that we had to... Um, take the biggest possible action. Um, And now we're sort of winding that back, but we're not winding it back based on what we know about the disease or or, or the virus itself. We're actually winding it back based on um, the only concrete things we have, which is um, the number of infections and the number of deaths. And that's not really science, that's just counting, right? So, We've we, we shut down the entire economy. We've stopped people from moving around. And of course, this has had an effect on the spread of the disease. But this isn't, you know, when we say follow the science, it implies that there's some really sophisticated kind of reasoning going on here. But actually what happened was we reacted to the uncertainty um, and we're pretty confident that um, we are seeing the result we wanted from our large-scale action, and now we're actually going to experiment a little bit wow. by relaxing the restrictions. But it's it's not it's not um, science, or rather, it's an experiment. It's science in action.
0: Uh, I'd have to challenge that a little bit, Andrew. I think what what you say was probably right, uh, you know, a month or so ago, um, as an interpretation of of what's going on. But I think. Um, John Roskam got it uh, right in the Fin Review last Friday, and I say this not just because he's my boss, but when he when he said that you know at the start of this process you know the the National Cabinet and his deliberations were fifty percent I sorry were were all about the science and now they're fifty percent science and fifty percent politics um, and. And there's a a lot of politics in this because a lot of the data has come in. You know, we we have learnt. I don't think we're in this situation of extreme uncertainty. I think there's a lot more known knowns and even known unknowns. I mean, we're still in a situation where there's now more and more evidence pause in every day about the lack of transmission amongst children uh the lack of symptoms amongst children the lack of positive tests amongst children this is this is we're, this is moving out of the realm of uh uncertainty into a solid body of evidence
1: um i don't you know, know uh, uh, Scott. can i just jump in there because i don't know that that's entirely the case we knew in january and february and perhaps not with the same Certainty, but we knew that it didn't seem to affect children on, on many of the policy-relevant margins. The many of the policy-relevant attributes of this disease, I actually think we knew uh, most of what we know now in March. Now, the evidence base for those for, for that knowledge has firmed up. Absolutely, we've got more and more studies, not just out of China but out of the rest of the world, about some of those really key things like transmission in children but it does strike me as that we have roughly the same knowledge even if it's firmer knowledge about the characteristics of this disease that we did when we made the decision to lock down so in that sense i think andrew's right i think what these decisions at least in australia and it's different around the world but these decisions in australia are being made just purely looking at well you know in in different, in lots of Australian states, there are just zero cases or zero new infections each day.
2: Yeah, I think maybe maybe I didn't explain myself um, as well as I wanted to, but I think that what's happened in the last week is that somehow or other, we are now at a point where the government is confident that we've exceeded whatever threshold of knowledge it was. Um, that turns the precaution switch on and off. Um, Now, that's not... The point I'm trying to make is that that's not um, being presented... That's not being presented as as, as the way it actually happens. Um, The the, the implication here is that um, something is now um, much more concrete than it was, um, but actually, the only thing that's really—it seems to me, anyway—the thing that's concrete is that in Australia, the 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 virus has been um, contained very well, um, and so that we can relax the restrictions. But that that really only comes down to um, the the infection rate as recorded and the, and the death rate. It, it doesn't come down to—it's it, not a decision being made about really specific things about how the virus works, or at least if it is, then I don't think that that's been communicated very well to us.
1: Yeah, the thing that has frustrated me through this whole crisis is um, governments have had to make a lot of decisions about what we can and cannot do under lots of different complicated circumstances. They've had to come up with um, incredibly specific rules that govern all of our lives. Um, and so they've come up with the idea, as I said, you know, it was in New South Wales, it was two people you could have over, now it's five people by Friday. But there's no evidence to back up these individual marginal Difference. this there's actually no
0: attempt to link any evidence to any of the measures ever uh in fact the only defenses that you see coming out i mean one of the more bizarre ones from victoria was essentially a defense that well how can you possibly go and play golf and then try to justify to little johnny why he can't go to the park and kick the footy with his mates hmm. um, therefore no one can play golf you know the only defenses are actually seem to be about the um the behavioral change that's being sought not about any link to actual epidemiology
2: yeah that that's 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 a great way of, of putting my point thanks scott you've actually done it uh, much, better, <laughs> much better than i have done um the, the the point i'm endeavoring to make is it's not like we found out some very specific thing about how this virus functions say like you know the the temperature in which it it, it grows most rapidly or some something about you know how it's transmitted or or some very specific thing and then turn that into these new rules actually all we've done is say well we're now well below what we thought would be the the disaster um scenario of overwhelming the hospitals and so we can let it out a little bit um and as long as we keep enough of a sort of reserve capacity should it break out again but like you say Scott there there hasn't been a a real attempt to say okay we didn't know about um, the virus as such but now we know this this and this about the virus and how it spreads and who it's most risky for and and why um and how it affects the body in a very specific way and now we can say these rules that's not actually the case what it is is that the uncertainty um that surrounds it is now um better contained by the by mitigation measures and the capacity of the the healthcare system um, and, I, and that's that's the point i'm endeavoring to make is just that um you, when they when they present this like, um, we've when they present this like we're operating in a different environment altogether to how we were a month or two months ago, it's actually not true. The thing that's changed is just um, the the level of uncertainty and fear around the spread has has changed. Isn't there isn't
1: there an argument though, Andrew, to appeal to your sensibilities that um, what we've done. Is um, we're, we've tried to in- make a very legalistic, almost rationalistic version of what human societies have always done in response to these sorts of pandemics um, since at least the medieval era, we have um, instituted quarantines in response to outbreaks of infectious disease. Um, When we were doing it in the medieval ages, we were not having press conferences where they outlined how many people could go into what parks in what circumstances and what businesses were essential. But fundamentally, we are just trying to do a very modern version of adopting that same traditional response. Um, And when you look at an epidemic, curve, historical epidemic curve, it always reflects the fact that the society will shut down in some way, whether by law or just by social norm.
2: My understanding is that in earlier uh, epidemics, the usual or normal practice was to try and isolate the people most at risk. Um the, the thing that seems to be unprecedented is shutting down the entire economy on the premise that we don't know who is at risk, um, and this has fed into um, some of the mistakes that have been have been quite bad. Um, that I think we'll talk about in the next segment um, around uh, protecting old people from the from the disease. But I think. Um, you know, there's a, there's a sort of an acad- there's a, there's quite a substantial academic literature around precaution and whether it actually makes any epistemological sense, um, which I won't like bore people with. Too much. But <laughs> I mean, you got point, off to a bad start.
1: But my <laughs> footnoted but, version of this talk will be available at ipl. <laughs> today.
2: Um, I would say that. This is I why we love having you on, Andrew. <laughs> nice. I am gen- I am generally a supporter of. Um, of precaution, um, I wouldn't say that it is um, senseless or irrational, but I do think that um, I think I made this point on the podcast at the very start of this this epidemic is that if that's what you're going on, there's actually you actually still have to make a positive, qualitative judgment about the nature of the risk that you confront. Well,
0: well how about this, Andrew? How about this for a formulation then? Since I did so well. Saying what you were trying to say last time, isn't the point that when you're in the realm of known knowns and um, statistical analysis based on actual firm data, you are in the realm of science, and scientists have claim some claim to be able to say, you know, if we do X, then Y results, so you should do Z. Precaution is not that kind of a realm, and you know, for, for a conservative, doesn't it sort of cry out that? Um, to take precautionary steps, one must apply some common sense. And it, and, it, and it brings it back to, and again, this is John Roskam's point, the fact that it's now 50% politics could actually be seen as a positive. It's like, good, governments will start to become accountable again for the things that they're doing. And what a conservative would say is, well, let's have some common sense. There was a great article, uh, David Penbethy, the uh, South Australian con- correspondent for The Australian... Uh, talking about the relatively calm and sensible measures that were taken over there. It's a it's a small estate. Everyone knows each other. The uh, chief health officer, the head of the police force, you know, the head of the police force was not, you know, an insane crypto-fascist. I'm not saying anyone in particular is, but just, just, <laughs> just making that just point. to clarify. Oh, just, just clarify. <laughs> I'm, not, no, I'm not speaking of anyone in particular, but... Um, just an observation,
1: just connected to anything.
0: And the chief health officer was not obsessed with identity politics or any sorts of other Again, agendas. Not, an not
1: unconnected observation
0: unconnected but observation to no one in particular <laughs> and uh, so what they did was sensible from the start and lo and behold uh, the results were certainly no worse than any of the other states and uh, on many measures better because a little bit of common sense actually crept in and that's that's still the thing that we're looking for is it's not too much politics it's actually not enough.
1: Yeah, and this is the big. This is the big challenge that those those marginal differences between states, and you know, all the different states they had versions of lockdown. There's no question. There's no. um, uh, There are no states that had a, a status quo model, but those differences actually make a really substantial impact on the way we experience these lockdowns. They make a very material difference to our um, uh, our individual freedoms. Um, the idea that we couldn't have, the idea that we in Victoria could not see our family on Mother's Day was experienced as a really material attack on our, our liberties.
2: This is, yeah, and this is right. I mean, Scott, your, your point uh, is, is very well made that when Is that the scientific knowledge, empirical knowledge, is not the only kind of knowledge to which you would refer in these situations. That um, there's a whole lot of um, social knowledge, and and we can talk about this when we get to Scruton, I guess, at the end, but the... the, um, there's, there's other forms of knowledge that are active in our society on which you can draw. And ultimately, when you have to make a decision about, say, shutting down the economy because you're so uncertain about the risk, then there's a number of um, assumptions that you're making about how people will, will respond um, to that, um, you know... Um, so there's basically – and and then, of course, this is – and this is what I um, I sent a, a letter to – an email to all of our members this week um, to make the point that when you're making those qualitative judgments, it's important that the people making those are doing so based on a, a set of values that they share with the people over whom they rule um, so that these, these decisions are sensible, intelligible um, – Uh, And the the results of them can be predicted, coordinated. And this is all different kinds of knowledge above and beyond um, what we do or do not know about the, the virus itself.
0: Absolutely, and that's, that's a beautiful foreshadowing there. This is um, Act 1 of the uh, Looking Forward uh, screenplay in which we foreshadow what's going to come in Act 3 <laughs> <I know. laughs> when we talk about... Um, that's the, that's the oh, gun, gun, gun hanging on scum. the wall in that. That's the gun yes, on the wall. the gun. <laughs> that's yeah, Scruton's gun. <laughs> um, uh, but we do, have act two to, act. we do have Act 2 to the Spenceworth, and uh, this is a sudden scene change
1: to Sweden. That's right, Scott. Um, So while we have taken the full lockdown model, um, other countries have not, obviously, Sweden being the most prominent and interesting and controversial example. Um, Andrew, you've observed that uh, the interesting thing about Sweden is almost less whether they are succeeding and more how the left and how many progressives in the Western world have responded to the Swedish case.
2: The yeah, I think that's that's right. Is that um, there seems to be at least a few people, and we don't want to give too much of a blanket accusation, but there seems to be at least a few people who hope that the Swede that the Swedes are wrong. Um, so they have not had a lockdown per se, they have had, um, they've limited the the size of gatherings, so um, to less than 50 people. Um, They've tried to uh, close off access to more vulnerable populations like uh, the elderly. Um, And of course, they have suggested to people that they keep their distance from one another. Um, They've had occupancy limits uh, imposed on bars and restaurants, but they've kept them open um, so they haven't gone the whole hog the way we have. They've had a, a somewhat more moderate approach where they've been willing to trust um, that, that most people will do the right thing. And the, the premise here is that the, you can't stop the transmission of the virus altogether. You can manage the speed of the transmission of the virus through the community until you build up um, herd immunity, um, which at a certain threshold is 60%, 70% depending on on the virus, um, uh, means that the, the virus can't spread from one person. There's just not enough viable hosts for it to, to keep spreading. So that's the approach that they've taken. Some people um, seem to not want that to succeed because... Um, and to give it the most charitable reading, they don't want it to succeed because um, they think that it's based on a, a, a quite brutal utilitarian trade off um, where Sweden is is, allow- is is saying, well, we'll let it spread. Um, and we know that we're going to have more deaths, uh, more infections and more deaths early on in the epidemic as it exists in Sweden. Um, the One of the senior epidemiologists there, um, Johan uh, Gieseker, has said that he thinks over a 12-month period, um, and that's the period that he suggests that it should be judged, over a 12-month period it'll all even out in the end, and that Sweden will have um, a roughly proportionate uh, amount of death from uh, COVID-19 as states that have had the full lockdown, and he's saying what well, What he believes and what the Swedish um, policy implies is that um, in the end, there is uh, no difference um, between, um, there'll be no difference between countries based on how severe their lockdowns were.
0: And just, just before, sorry, Chris. Just before we yeah. we go into the to the merits of that, I just want to say I, the reason why we're talking about this is um, because we think it's important. It's not because we say Australia should have done what Sweden did. Austra- Australia and New Zealand are clearly the outliers on the world stage. Uh, we're in a different hemisphere in a different season. Um, we've had a lot of luck, as we've discussed on this this program. So clearly. Um, I I think Josh Frydenberg was completely specious when he started talking about how much worse Sweden's performance was than Australians in a a recent speech, because the comparison is not with Australia. We're talking about um, Sweden versus, say, the UK or with France. Um, or with Italy and what, you know, their relative performances. But it's important because these issues are not going to go away. As Australia comes out of lockdown, the, we need to understand how we think about these things and how we get to the bottom uh, of what's actually going on because the virus will be with us for a while. And um, in Sweden, we have this remarkable counterfactual which we should be looking at. Uh, dispassionately, rather than um, in the way that an- some of the people Andrew was talking about, who are determined, it seems to um, uh, make it into a-, a case of what not to do without actually looking at the facts. At
2: the very least, we all have an interest in in trying to find out um, the merits of different responses to this uh, to this pandemic for the next one. Um, so even if it's not about um, pointing fingers or or showering some people with praise and others with blame, um, there's there's something useful to be learned for the next time because – you know, in an ideal world, um, it wouldn't be the case that every time there was a novel virus um, that was the, a novel deadly virus, that you had to go to such an extreme in your response.
1: It strikes me that Sweden's a really interesting case because um, there, there's this caricature that it's a sort of um, uh, business as usual uh, model, but it isn't, as you said um Andrew, there's a combination of um, new rules. There are lockdown rules. You can't have large events. And there are, of course, social distancing measures that have been encouraged by the government and voluntarily adopted by um, the Swedish population. Sweden has incredibly high social capital, so they're very um, uh, very open to following those sorts of instructions. But by and large, this has been a, a voluntary model. And it, and it ends up being an incredibly significant distinction because the debate, I think we are going to have for years to come, will be this interaction between government rules and what we would have done in the absence of those government rules. What sort of social distancing would have we voluntarily acquiesced to? And again, the history of human society tells us, and, and obviously common sense tells us, that when faced with a global pandemic, when faced with a local epidemic, we don't just um, go about our daily lives. We don't just go out to nightclubs, as uh, nightclubs or bars or pubs, or as as we might have done. So we act in response as well. I've been looking at some of the um, really interesting research that's come out only in the last couple of weeks, sort of supplanting the early really um, uh, influential but I think highly questionable models that have been released in March and this, these show that loose lockdowns in many cases um, act uh, are, are superior at stemming total numbers of deaths over time rather than those these harsh Um, firm lockdowns that we've adopted. And we can put some of the details of those in the show show notes. But what it really shows to us is that um, uh, some of the certainties we may have felt or governments may have felt in March are being challenged by alternative models like Sweden.
2: The, yeah, and, and that's right, that the Swedes, it's important to, to understand about what's happened in Sweden, I think. Uh, and you've uh, lived there, Andrew, haven't you? And uh, Yeah, many, many, many years ago now, I was lucky enough to um, do my master's in a place called Linköping. Um It's about halfway between Stockholm and uh, Malmö in the south of Sweden. Um, and Swedes, Swedes are, are great people. It's a beautiful country. It's important to, to understand, I think, culturally, when we say, when we talk about um, Sweden having historically very high levels of, of trust um, and, and solidarity, um, is that had their experts made the opposite determination, then Swedes would have more likely than not complied with that as well. This is not um, the same as in the United States, where you have seen, say, in Michigan, protesters going to... Um, uh to the congress there um demanding their freedom this is more the case that you, you um, missed the a very pragmatic. important point
1: extremely well armed protesters
2: yeah well i le- i left that out i mean but i think <laughs> the, so but it, it, you know it reinforces the point that what's happened in sweden is actually a, a, a pragmatic um decision um that they think that this will be the, the best course of action overall um taking into account other factors like wanting to preserve their local customs, um, not wanting to put too much of a strain on people. I mean, March is spring um, in Sweden and spring in Nordic countries is extremely important um, (laughs) because you've just come out of a very brutal winter. The days start getting longer um, and people flock to the parks People, people rush outside the same way that flowers turn to the sun in the morning. Um, it's it's a natural response. So, trying to lock people in their homes after that winter um, might have been more of a test. Um, but I do think that people would have would have complied one way or the other. But I think Chris, your your point um, about where this debate will end up is actually um, uh, really important um, because I think it's it's probably the big debate in society anyway, apart from the yeah. pandemic. And it's this um, uh, relationship between rules and individual behavior and how they shape one another. The kinds of rules that you can have based on what people want and the things that people want based on the rules that are around them and that govern them. Um, and so we were kind of in a debate about that anyway anyway, before the pandemic, I think, um, and, and this has really brought it out because different you're seeing different societies assert themselves in different ways based on their historical understandings um, of their freedoms, of their society, of their culture, of their norms, their willingness to police each other on different things. So it's actually brought out, in a way,
0: yeah, who would have thought that the that the home of Magna Carta would actually draw on some quite different cultural roots and 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 go back to a sort of Tory paternalism combined with sort of the ink sock that George
1: Orwell described. This is like a theatrical production where everybody just keeps staring at the gun, where everything else goes on. Like, look at the gun, look at the gun, it's ready to go. <laughs> <laughs> um, I do want to actually just just give a slightly more. Before we move on to um, Roger Scrooge's gun, um, I do want to actually just drill down an interesting um, instance of this dilemma. So we've been obviously talking about the decision to go into lockdown as a um, choice, uh, as a decision made on the basis of an assessment about how people will respond with or without government um, intervention. But there's also, on the other hand, what we're seeing in other countries like the United States, Particularly, what we're seeing is almost a socially induced end to lockdowns. Unlike in Australia where ours are induced, our lockdown is ending because the numbers are so low, so a medically induced one, there's a social um, uh, social movement to abandon lockdowns, to move back to a business as usual and just accept the fact that the virus is going to go through that through communities um, and that's what we're seeing in in places like Michigan and Georgia and um, uh, lots of lots of places that could foreseeably be very heavily harmed by the virus but um, the citizens of those um, uh, cities and those states just won't accept a lockdown any longer
2: and that's because the trade-off actually is is another thing that's uncertain right that when you say what is the most costly, what's most costly to me and to my family um, and to my society, it's not as obvious as, as people might think that the, um, that the least harmful option is, is the shutdown and defeat the virus at all costs. Actually, um, and I wrote a, a piece in The Spectator a few weeks ago about this, Actually, both sides uh, of the argument, or all sides of the argument, because I, I think there are shades of, of grey along the way. All sides of the argument are actually making an argument about um, how, what they think that trade-off looks like. The trade-off between do I like in the United to put it in American language is like do I trust the government to do less harm than the virus? Um, and Americans in general, or at least in large parts of the United States, the instinctive answer to that is, well, no, I don't. Um, And in Australia, there's um, probably less of that um, reflexive uh, distrust of government, but there's still uh, a certain undercurrent of it. And I think in Australia, the way it comes out actually is as a a kind of um, bias towards uh, the status quo or the status quo ante in that uh, Australians, I think, are starting to uh, um, starting to demand government explain how we go back. So we saw today Anthony Albanese was giving a, a speech um, about how this is uh, a real opportunity for Labor to provide a, a really progressive agenda about how we have a future that's, that's different from the past and, and things like that. But I don't think that that is actually reading the room very well. I mean, I think Australians, it seems to me, and and reading the the three steps provided by the government, I think um, the course of action for Australians or that Australians are looking to government to provide is um, actually a path back to a world where I can get on the train in the morning and go to work and then on the weekend I can go have a pub meal and roll into into the footy um, and watch Richmond win. So I think it's kind of
1: it's kind of nuts too, isn't it? If you think about it, and listeners of the podcast will know what my argument is on this, but it, it's a non-trivial thing to get back to the status quo of 2019. It, um, just on a purely economic perspective, um, the idea that we're going to be as rich as we were last year, the moment you know we can hop on a train or or head back to the football or we can go to the local restaurant, is an obvious fantasy just so much damage has been done the um, uh, once once we are back to on a um, trajectory or have achieved the wealth that we previously enjoyed then absolutely we can have all sorts of conversations but right now the only thing that we should be thinking about is how can we get back to what you would describe um, Andrew as as the status
2: quo of 2019 yeah how can, and, and, we, how can we be as rich as we were in December last year? Yeah, and it's possible that they're like I, I use the word that the, the words the status quo, but I mean, I guess what we what we really jobs. Make, we want people back jobs. jobs. Want, yeah. yeah, how I can want we get
1: back, back into employment?
2: And we want our well, and we want our society to go back to its long term historical trend. Hmm. Um, I don't think anyone thinks that. Um, Even the almighty, all-powerful Dan Andrews can click his fingers and put things back together. Um, When you say that, you've got to see his fan base on Twitter. Um, Oh, Oh, God.
0: Well, it's it's a question for you, Andrew. It's a question without notice, and um, it's in the realm of ethics. So you look at at Twitter and Facebook, and one of the things, there's a whole genre which sort of says, hey, listen – you know, we've got to be grateful that we're home, we're safe, we've got you know, we've got the children and we've got our health and, and we're comfortable and there's sort of a circle of empathy argument. It's sort of like we need to widen our circle of empathy and think of the old people. Like you can't say think of the children. You say think of the old people and how we must protect them. Think of the healthcare workers and that and there's this, I think, you know, mostly genuine effort to say you know, I'm comfortable and I'll put up with these restrictions though, because I am thinking of these other groups in society and I want to do my bit to keep them safe. Why is it that you can enlarge your circle of empathy to take into account vulnerable groups who are vulnerable from a health perspective, but they can't enlarge their circle of empathy to include those who've lost their bloody job um who uh, were in casual employment or may have been in permanent employment um can't pay the mortgage uh got tremendous domestic stress at home um who who want to make different choices in in the language that uh, of your analysis Andrew but uh, for some reason they they're beyond the circle of empathy we don't, they're, they're not being thought about what's going on
2: the line there Scott I'm afraid to say is that uh The recession that's just being created um, and the ongoing economic effects are actually attributable to capitalism. Um, Yes, yes, that's a good point. So it's not uh, – so the line the line is – because I've seen people ask this question to some of the more rabid um, left-wing commentators, and their argument is, well, people only die in recessions or only die or, or, or have um, their family life disrupted and and things like that in, in poor economic conditions because the government has insufficiently secured them against that. Um, and so it's, it, in, in their view, this is an entirely – um, soluble problem in a way that the the health crisis caused by the pandemic is not. Now, you and I know, um, and normal people know, that there's a lot more to it than merely um, material conditions and the amelioration of the material harm that comes from losing your job. Um, of course, a lot of the, the the problems that we see in times of recession are actually non-material um, cause causes. Um, the the loss, the loss people have of, of purpose and and their connection to the the broader community, um, their feelings of um, you know usefulness at home, um, their relationships with people become strained. There's the the, the kind of indignity that comes from um, having to constantly ask people for help and being seen as someone who needs help. Um, and so there's all these natural human reactions that get mixed up in it. But I think the answer to your question, Scott, is why does there empathy not extend that far? Well, they would say their empathy extends so far in that direction that they would like to remake the entire uh, economic and social system that we inhabit.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a there's an attitude on some political quarters that uh, work is not an inherently dignified thing. There are good jobs, but there are also bad jobs and society's job should be um, to remove people from uh, the jobs that whatever elites, whatever um, uh, intellectual classes don't th- uh, think are demeaning or something like that.
0: Gentlemen, we have come to that part of the show where we're approaching the end of Act 2. And for those listeners and viewers who've been uh, wondering what these um, uh, wankers are going on about, what is their in-joke, <laughs> this is the principle of Chekhov's gun, Um uh, Chekhov, the uh, Russian playwright, who said, remove everything that has no relevance to the story. If you say in the first chapter that there is a rifle hanging on the wall, in the second or third chapter, it absolutely must go off. If it's not going to be fired, it shouldn't be hanging there. And that was the uh, the little in-joke we were making about um, Roger Scruton, the great British philosopher, who of whom we will speak now. This is the latest edition of the IPA review that I'm holding up Uh, to the camera, and uh, this will be arriving in the mailboxes of IPA members over the next week or so, Australia Post permitting, and inside this wonderful edition of the IPA review is this wonderful article on the great man, Roger Scruton, which was written by Andrew Bushnell. This gives us a chance to reflect on not just Roger Scruton, but conservatism generally, and what conservatism might look like in a post-COVID world. What what would Roger Scruton have made of all this? Do you think, Andrew?
2: Was well, a, a big big question. Uh, let's see if I can get to <laughs> yeah. it. I, I think um, no, the once th- in th- a lifetime th- pandemic. <laughs> as no, as, as you say, as you say, Scott. The the article um, that I wrote um, was um, unfortunately an obituary, um, the great Sir Roger Scruton. Died on 12 January this year, um, at the age of 75, um, after a short battle with with cancer. Um, over the course of his lifetime, he, he wrote more than 50 books. Um, I think he has another one that's just come out, perhaps posthumously. Um, so he hasn't he hasn't left us altogether in the lurch. Um, and I think. Um, you know the, the point I was trying to make in the in the article um, about about um, Sir Roger's philosophy is that um, unlike unlike a lot of people who have gone by the moniker conservative, um, Scruton actually does across those fifty books um, of various various kinds actually get close to providing a, a kind of systematic account of conservatism. Um, building it up from an idea of, of what he thinks that the human person is, the relationship between that human person and, and other persons and society itself, um, building that up to a kind of doctrine, as he calls it, about how society's institutions fit together. Um, and, I, and and so there's actually a, an almost um, underappreciated uh, richness in in. Roger Scruton's work, that the the, the philosophical work, not just the the more polemical things that people would know. He was also a prolific commentator. um, But the actual philosophical work has a kind of richness, depth and and systematicity that is probably underappreciated. And I was just trying to to tease that out. So what would Scruton say about about the the pandemic? I think that he would be um, like Peter Hitchens, um, the, the English commentator Peter Hitchens. I think Scruton would be concerned with how easily um, historical, uh, traditional institutions have been devalued um, when we talk about this trade-off between um, the, the response to the, the public health crisis um, and and other things that we value in society, along with our health, not not against. Our health, but along with other contributors to our health, I think, like Hitchens, I think Scruton would be very concerned that um, that the traditional English liberties, um, but also traditional English duties to one another and to the to the future to their children, um, to pass on what's great in their society, is probably been uh, undervalued somewhat in that country.
1: It, uh, let's just talk a little bit more about that idea of the systematic thought of, um, Scruton's conservatism. Uh, one of the books I have on my shelves is, um, by a fellow named Robert Nisbet, who's a, um, uh, sort of 1980s conservative, uh, social thinker. And the title of his book is called Prejudices, a Philosophical Dictionary, where he spells out just his, his assorted collections of views on um uh from from a, a distinctly conservative perspective and it's always it's always struck struck me that a lot of conservative thought by design is rather than one grand um one grand theory it's a a group of learned lessons over time that brought together looks disparate um uh, but is uh but is in fact is reasoned to in the same way. Uh, but you but you say that Scruton actually has a distinct, well, a, a, an implicitly distinct systematic vision.
2: I think unlike a lot of um, conservatives, um, some of the most famous conservatives, um, Scruton was a philosopher first. Um, mm. So um, the only other one that people might familiar with would be Michael Oakeshott, who was a a philosopher first and who is often considered a conservative um, and considered himself a kind of uh, somewhat esoteric um, version of conservative. Um, But Scruton was a a, a philosopher first. Um, He started um, his career writing about um, aesthetics um, and moved into um, political philosophy. Um, And so like all philosophers, um, Scruton is a believer uh, in in um, well reason, um, the ability to describe to describe the world um, in a in a in a systematic, um, reasonable way. Whereas a lot of other Conservative literature comes from, um, I think, Nisbet was a, a, a sociologist, I think, um, or a historian. Um, a lot of conservatives have been historians. And, of course, the historical approach tends to lead towards um, uh, the most famous one would probably be Russell Kirk. Taking a historical descriptive approach kind of lends itself to, lead to, to producing a litany right? Like a list of, of kind of conservative nostrils. Here are the good, here are the good guys, here are the bad uh, guys. <laughs> yeah. And I think, so well, I think for, for Scruton, I think what, what makes Scruton interesting, and certainly from um, the point of view of, of my research, which is um, my thesis is basically an argument that um, conservatism can be described um, in the same political philosophical terms as any other um, ideology, if you like to use that word, um, that it has a, a an ideal, I, an ideal of society that it is trying to realise, um, in the same way that, say, liberalism or socialism or or any other ism is is trying to. Um, and I think in in Scruton we get the closest, um, the closest we have, in my view, to to something like that, where Scruton says, well. As a matter of uh, as a matter of fact, the the human person um, does not know his own mind in a direct way. That, that would that, and that would, which is the basic the basic idea of liberalism um, is that is that you have some sort of direct and privileged access to your own mind. Um, such that thwarting your expression of that is somehow to wrong you. Um, Scruton's conservatism starts with the idea that actually the concepts by which you know your own mind um, descend to you from um, a society that you, that you therefore owe a duty to. Um, and he builds up from there um, a, an idea of, of what makes for authority in society and, and, and to what you should um, defer. And then liberty takes its place within that um, as as something that uh, that uh, a well ordered society actually produces rather than um, takes as its foundation.
1: So one of the differences between Scruton and Oakshot is um, uh, Oakshot. Yes, he was um, a he he was somewhat esoteric, conservative, but he was a philosopher only, if you know what I mean. And the difference, uh, and Scruton is a philosopher in the world. He was always very engaged in contemporary questions, in contemporary debates, even political debates. Um, so while no doubt Scruton's philosophy will have a legacy that will be discussed by conservative and other philosophers um, uh, in, in decades to come, what would you say the Scruton's sort of political or public discourse legacy is?
2: That's a, a good question because Scruton, and I say this in the piece, is that... Scruton would often infuriate um, his opponents by being both profound and, um, and, willing, to, and, <laughs> and willing to throw punches. Um, he would he would get he would get in the arena um, in public. He was very much public intellectual. He paid um, a, a quite a high career price for being willing to. So for he for example he was the editor and publisher of the Salisbury Review. Um, which was a conservative, or is a conservative, um, magazine journal of commentary in in the United Kingdom, um, and uh, he was willing to willing to get to get stuck in, um, but I think, and, and so in that sense, Scruton is actually um, something of a, an archetype for um, the way the public intellectuals uh, operate now. I think if Scruton were 20 years younger. Um, then he might have had a, a, a slightly different career in the current environment, where as you, where, where some of the, the the people who are more at odds with the institutional um, structure of academia and uh, and public commentary seek out their own channels, um, as as in fact we are doing right now. Um, who knows? Who knows what contribution Scruton might have made? But throughout his career, he was not—he was an academic. He left. He left the academy. He had um, positions at think tanks like the American Enterprise Institute um, before returning to to the academy. Um, so he was always prepared to to seek out um, avenues by which he could shape the public public debate as well. And I think that's a real—I think that's really important lesson for the for the academy. Um, and, and this is something that, um, as a PhD student, we've actually been told is that the academy is quite conscious of its need to um, mix it up a little bit more with the public and not hold itself as somehow separate from the discussion that everyone else is having.
1: It, it, it's, it's interesting because um, Scruton seems to be a, he, he's an icon of a, well, is seen as an icon of a certain type of. Anglo-American conservatism and you talk about um, the American Enterprise Institute has him uh, had him as a, um, uh, as a fellow with them. so one of the great iconic free market think tanks in the world um, uh, like the IPA obviously. Um, but it, it strikes me that, that we're in this huge debate right now or we have been for the last couple of years, about a splitting between the sort of classical liberal side and the conservative side of that Anglo-American conservative fusion. Um, uh, And and when you think about what Scruton has taught us and Scruton's philosophy, how do you think it fits into that? And do you think that changes because of COVID? Do you think we're we're moving into a divide or is there a um, new... Post-COVID, post-Scruton um, uh, conservatism.
2: Scruton was Scruton was never a fusionist. Um, I think that there, it would be something of a mistake to to think that he ever changed his views. His his first political work was the meaning of conservatism, and that came out in the early '80s, and was actually um, a response to what he thought was the excesses of um, of the the impending Thatcher period, so she had just come to power. But of course, it took a few years for Thatcherism proper to get up and going. Um, and I think yes.
0: And just to interrupt, I, I was shocked in your review to read that. The, yeah, he wrote that in 1980, a year after she was elected. So um, he was on it straight away.
2: Yeah, and 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 his point his point in writing that was was to to, to set up what became sort of his argument, because he did become something of a a, a supporter of Thatcher, but he wanted to set up, I think, if you read it, he he wants to set up the the, the way that liberty and free markets are functional for the kind of ordered society that he's talking about um, and how they can be deployed um, to strengthen rather than contest with um, traditional institutions. So, you know, Scruton was a, a, a keen uh, a, a, a student of, or a keen reader of of Hayek. Um, he has made uh, he made arguments for the the conservative aspects that what he thought were the conservative aspects of of Hayek's thought. Now Hayek, of course, um, much more considered the, probably the, the the standard bearer these these days of the the classical liberal tradition. Probably the classical liberal to whom most people would. Would refer in using the term, but um, Scruton, Scruton saw, in in particular, the idea of um, uh, the sort of the evolutionary development of, of social knowledge. Um, he saw a way um, to to under to understand, I guess, the the the, the, the origins of and, and the value of um, of that socially distributed knowledge um, that that both traditions. Um, hold in high esteem
1: does any of that change because of uh, how do you how do you think this changes after the once in a century pandemic and um shut of <laughs> all our liberties now we don't have liberties anymore
2: <laughs> yeah well, i mentioned before though i think i think the debate that we've we've been having in our society for the last few years anyway i think it's the big debate in all different aspects of certainly philosophy um is is and probably in economics, um, you'd, be, you'd know this better than me. But this sort of push and pull dynamic interplay between institutions and individuals, mm. and how they shape one another, um, and of course the, the conservatism um, at the moment is is returning to what I would consider it's it's true it's true argument, which is that um, that you can't you can't understand individuals and individualism um, separate from the institutions that shape. Um, who those people are, and and what makes their, what makes their lives meaningful, and their and their individual persons valuable. So I think, um, screw you know, I think that's what's changing in conservatism now. Is there a future for, well, the old fusionism? I think has been called a what a dead consensus. There was a, a famous piece a, a little while ago, was signed by a few. Um, Conservatives saying that the, the the old fusionism is dead, but if there is a, a, a new fusionism or um, the a chance for cooperation going forward, then I think um, concerns around it, it probably comes down to concerns around the the what we call the administrative state, this huge um, bureaucratic. Um, you know, the bureaucratic force that takes it upon itself to, to rationalise society, that you can get to opposition to to the, the kinds of massive interventions that we've seen in the name of, say, public health. You can get to um, uh, problematizing that from both traditions, um, you know, you, and of course that will come out in different ways. Um, but certainly... Yeah, you, the, <laughs> both, the, both
0: Liberals and Conservatives... Tend to have the same attitude towards governments telling them that they can't sit on a park bench. It's, a, it's amazing how new opportunities for fusionism arise.
2: So, so I think, and, and certainly, um, you know, the 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 implications you would take from those from the arguments presented will be different. Um, but I think that every time you see this kind of this kind of overreach. The conservative concern for understanding our liberties as particular institutions that have um, time-tested value will um, interact in a a beneficial way with the more a priori um, justification of at least some versions of those institutions that you get from liberalism. So there need to be a debate about well, what are the limits of what are the limits of those liberties and, and um, in what way are they functional for order? And you know, if you're a libertarian, you might say, well, I don't necessarily care about that second question. But you know, in in the middle of a crisis where you have um, you seem to have bureaucrats and the occasional premier enjoying their power a little bit. Um, then I think you can sort of see the contours of, um, you know, a little bit, a li- uh, at least the potential for continued cooperation. Of course, harder in the United States where only one faction can supply a presidential candidate.
0: Yeah. Um, so I will say, um, for the, once again, for those who are interested in Andrew's argument about uh, Roger Scruton. It's in the IPA Review. It's not too late to ring up and join and Francisco will send you out a copy with your membership pack and in that edition also you will find a much, much less cautious, cautious appraisal of Margaret Thatcher. Uh, Richard Alsop is reviewing the final book in Charles Moore's authorised biography of Margaret Thatcher. Um, terrific book and a terrific review by Richard Alsop which I commend to you the um, recording the Iron Land ladies' uh, final years as Prime Minister. Speaking of books and culture, we've come to that segment of the program where we discuss what we've been reading, watching and listening to, and, and this time it's, it's mostly watching.
1: <laughs> it is mostly watching, Scott. So um, I have been watching uh, Normal People, which is the Irish... Um, romantic drama um, based on the book by, um, uh, what's her name? Sally Rooney, Um, uh, a hit book from last year, now a a TV show. Um, A couple of weeks ago, I I also reviewed Modern Love, the TV series, so I'm doing dopey romantic television um, in the middle of this global pandemic. Um, uh, This is a well-acted and ultimately deeply frustrating television show to watch it is the um uh, it's the sort of drama or narrative drama that could be solved by the two main characters just having a good chat with each other you know how in um, a lot of horror movies these days they have to figure out ways to get rid of cell phones or figure out ways to shut down the internet so that people can't just call for help or that sort of thing. Well, in this case, they have to figure out a way that two people are unable to have a sensible adult conversation. And I conclude by, uh, and the, the conclusion is that the way they do this is making these two people who are supposed to be incredibly smart by making them incredibly stupid. Um, <laughs> it's an enjoyable show, um, but it is very, frustrating to watch i admit i have only watched half of it maybe it gets less frustrating um uh but that is my my review of the hit television romantic drama normal people is it a <laughs> uh, well the, the book was a huge hit the book was a huge hit um if you read uh uh modern adult literature in 2019 which i'm not a huge reader of but it was um uh a, a best selling novel and now um, uh, the internet seems to have taken it by storm.
0: Good God, Chris. So I would never
1: have picked you for uh, readers. or readers Well, look, readers so, readers so, so Scott, different. we've talked about this. So we're, I just am not <laughs> reading very much at the moment because of just the complexities of um, both working from home and teaching your children at home and then trying to have some relaxing time. So so I, we watch Netflix, we watch Prime, we, we, just, we just watch television now, don't we, Scott?
0: Indeed. Well, I must admit, uh, this is very much counter-cyclical, but um, I went and bought a television. Um, bought
1: a television? Wow. After,
0: after 10 years, it was time to upgrade. And uh, this is obviously not a financially secure time to be making any any great purchases. But God damn it, we're at home all the time. We're watching a lot of television.
1: If you're going to buy something, you're buying a television.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's right. So it's, a, it's only 65 inches, which is um, comparatively restrained nowadays. Um, but it's a thing of beauty. And on that television, I have been watching uh, the show that everybody's been watching, the Michael Jordan documentary, The Last Dance. And uh, I think it is as good as people say, uh, I have no particular interest in basketball. I have enough interest generally in sports to know who Michael Jordan is. I didn't follow it much at the time, Um, but I think it is good because it, it can be watched at a number of... In a, at a, a number of different levels, certainly for those who are obsessed about uh, Michael Jordan and the NBA, um, this this is really where the modern NBA began. Well, here I go. I'm already doing this meta analysis. Um, it was one of the first I'll global stuff.
1: It's and that's what we really needed to know.
0: That, that's right. Well, <laughs> uh, one of the things he would have been appalled at. Actually, I remember. So uh, when the NBA. Um, was first able to form the Dream Team when the U.S. Olympic team went from being uh, semi-amateur to pro, mm. and they sent the the Dream Team to Barcelona in 1992. And I can remember how boorish they were. Um, this was, you know, the pride of American basketball. They were obviously the best, you know, the basketballers in the world. And one of the episodes shows them. Uh, beating up on this Croatian guy, Tony Kucic, who um, was at that stage was still playing in in Europe. And uh, they basically muscled him off the court. And it turns out this was because the manager of the Chicago Bulls had his eye on recruiting Tony Kucic. And Jordan and Pippen and all the guys at the Bulls hated Jerry Krause, hated the idea that he was going to bring in some outsider into their tight little crew. And um, so they beat him up on the court. Um, And I I can actually remember thinking, these guys are assholes. This is actually the... This certainly doesn't come out in the documentary, but it's like, this is everything that's wrong with America. But uh, what it does say, and it's, it's true that this is when... Jordan went from being this this uh, megastar in America to being a megastar in the world. It's like the start of that that trail that takes uh, the NBA all the way to China. Um, when, <laughs> well, you know, last year we had the story of, of how terrified they were at upsetting the um, CCP mm-hmm. because it's such a big part of their market, and and so I you know I trace it right back to to nineteen ninety two. Um, you blame the dream
1: team. Nice. I, I do. I <laughs> well, do. Certainly,
2: it's certainly interesting watching um, the documentary. And I'm, I'm, old enough um, to remember. I was kind of in that the probably the right demographic in the early '90s, where everyone suddenly overnight seemed to be interested in basketball. Um, and at the time, in the early '90s, the the NBL here in Australia. Um, was getting, you know, ten, fifteen thousand 15,000 people at the matches. Um, and it was all because this sport um, had just been driven into people's consciousness by, um, by Jordan, um, by the marketing around him, by how char- – I, I sort of disagree. I, I remember uh, – I mean, the, the, the campaign around Jordan was always, you know, be, was be like Mike. He's, he's the most charismatic man in the world, um, this incredible athlete, uh, good-looking well-behaved off the off the field, all of this like the perfect pin-up boy, and it's really interesting watching the documentary to look at the the old half-empty stadiums they were playing in in the mid '80s, and then to think about what the league became in the '90s mm. on the back of not one man's charisma. The Dream Team had this collection of superstars. You know, you had Bird and Magic Johnson who carried the sport through the '80s, um, but. You know, on the back of, of one man being just incredibly driven and really, really good at his sport, better than anyone, and prepared to go out there every single night to prove it, um, turned this sport from, you know, the sort of fourth-ranked sport in the United States to this this huge global sport. It's now played in almost as many countries as soccer. Um, it's really the only sport that has close to the global global reach that soccer has. Um and, and Jordan um, Jordan is, I think, the third or fourth richest um, African American in uh, personal terms, personal wealth. He actually owns one of the teams in the NBA now, um, and I just think the the story is um, just incredible. This one man, and I think in the documentary, he comes across as um, an extraordinary person. Um, just with deep wellsprings of drive that you can only admire. The worst thing they've been able to pin on him so far is that when asked about politics, he didn't want to talk about it. Um, <laughs> the and, only true crime. <laughs> yeah, which is like these days, is which these days is considered like the most horrendous abuse against the democratic process or something that anyone who's famous has well, to be. He, has to he refused
0: to re- endorse the Democratic candidate for the Senate in North Carolina who was going to unseat Jesse Helms in the famous comment that came out was Republicans buy shoes too uh,
1: well yes and uh, the only anecdote I have so I I was um, uh, I'm your age Andrew so I was um, 10 years old but I was in the US as well and the dominant thing about the dream team was it required us to all wear Nike shoes for basically a decade um, it was the only thing you could wear to school.
0: Well, that was Jordan. That wasn't the dream team. That was sponsored by Reebok, which is actually oh, one of the episodes. Oh, I know. Okay. Yeah, yeah. he co- he famously covered up the Ree- Reebok logo with the American flag.
2: Yeah, so which is which is so, genius. I mean, it's it's genius. actually. They so couldn't it's, argue it's, about it. It's like evil genius, but it's genius. <laughs> so,
0: so, every, so I agree with everything you said, Andrew. It, it certainly has a sports documentary as a as an insight into the mind of someone who is always on, always competitive, the drive to win. How he made that team, uh, I think Phil Jackson, the coach is also fascinating because he turned it from a team built around one man to uh, who was scoring like fifty sixty points a game to a more rounded outfit that could then win all those championships i 'm just making the point that I think you could almost make documentaries about this documentary. Uh, this <laughs> is footage that stayed there for twenty years uh, and it really charts a, a transition
2: uh, Scott, all right. Dare I connect it to, to Roger Scruton? Um, <laughs> good, good, good. I'd good. be Go. disappointed I'm gonna, if you kinda, didn't. Daniel. No, no, I have, to, I have to try. I have to try. But one of the things that's so interesting in this documentary about Phil Jackson, the coach in particular, and it's something that we've heard a lot about in the last couple of years around um, Richmond, um, which is my, my footy team, which is that periodically coaches rediscover the idea that they'll get a better performance from their team if they let the individuals within that team express themselves the way they want to express themselves. Um, and I think it's a really interesting example of how the institutional priorities and the priorities of the players have to be brought into alignment. And mm. the, the the Bulls had um, not just Jordan, um, who's an outsized personality as well as being a great player. They had another great player, Scotty Pippen. Um, and then they also had Dennis Rodman, who's one of the all time greats, but also, a, a unique, let's say, um, character um, off, the, off the court, and what Justin D- Dustin Mort-
0: Dustin Martin looked like a conformist. Yeah,
2: yes, and that's and that's right. And so when when Damien Hardwick was asked, you know, how did Richmond turn it around um, and finally become um, successful after so many years, and Hardwick has explained at length how what he learned was that he had to relax a little bit and not micromanage the players quite so much off the field and not expect them all to conform necessarily to his idea of of a professional um but to make sure that their training and their playing was professional um which isn't to say you know go out and do whatever you want but it is like you have to treat people as as who they are and phil jackson says basically the same thing in the documentary about dennis rodman and it's just an interesting thing because obviously the 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 institution has its its priority which is winning um and the individuals want to maximise. They want to win, of course, but they want to maximise their earnings and things like this. Um, and there's a there's an interesting um, the ways you know the the institutions' priorities have to become deeply embedded in the players. They have to see it as being something beyond yeah. themselves that they contribute to. Yeah,
0: it was the president of rich President of Richmond who said, uh, you know, it's not. Champions don't win premierships. Clubs do, and that's a direct lift from uh, Jerry Krauss, who was the the manager of the Chicago Bulls at that time.
2: Yeah, exactly. And, and so I think, and so I think, you know, in its own way, it's a it's a little bit like what um, what Scruton was trying to get at in his philosophy, which is that to really have a, an organisation that that succeeds and that pulls in the in the same direction towards its goal, um, actually, the a kind of a kind of um, uh, what's, what's the word I'm looking for, liberality perhaps um, towards some of the characters and who they are and not always looking over their shoulders is actually more functional for that goal than, um, you know, giving everyone a military haircut and making them march up and down all the time.
0: Indeed. So great show! There you go. I said that there were it was working at lots of levels, and you've just proved my point. <laughs> we can we'll, we'll we'll bring it back. We'll do review it again when they uh, for the last couple of episodes, which will be um, on deck. I think uh, from tonight. Uh, we're recording this on on Monday, and Andrew, your culture pick.
2: Yeah. Um- well, I chose mine sort of after you guys had chosen yours, and, and I thought I'd <laughs> choose one that kind of splits the difference. Um, it's, a, it's a drama about sports. Um, <laughs> uh, and so it's, a, it's called The English Game. It's about the birth of – it's a dramatization of the birth of professional soccer in England. Um, it's written by Julian Fallows, who some people might know from um, – as the creator of Downton Abbey. He's a Tory lord. Um, uh, and he has written this. So he writes from a kind of conservative perspective. This story, the English game, is actually comes very close to a kind of corporatist view of um, class relations. Uh, the 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 birth of the birth of professional soccer is actually, in a way, it's presented as an accord that is reached be- between. Um, One of the aristocrats on the the committee of the the Football Association and one of the the first um, professional uh, players, Scottish players, at one of the mill teams in Northern England. So he'd come down from Glasgow specifically to play football and be paid to play football. Um, And, of course, this was um, against the rules at the time. But... um, this one aristocratic character was able to see that, well, this is kind of how the game is going. Um, It means a lot to people in these mill towns and we need to reach some sort of accord with them about how we're going to govern the game together so that everyone um, can have what they want. So it seems like, uh, to me, it was actually made me more sympathetic to to professional sport, um, the professionalism of professional sport, I should say, um, because the character... The professional footballers are portrayed in quite a sympathetic way, but so also are the, the aristocratic amateurs. Um, at least one of them is portrayed in a very sympathetic way as being someone who who cares about the well-being not just of the the footballers that he comes up against on the pitch, but um, the way. Um, people in these northern mill towns live um, and and he's portrayed in a very sympathetic way as someone who cares about his country um, and wants the best for its people um, and so it's it's actually um, quite a nice nice little story it's 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 you know it's a bit up and down the writing um, it's a bit soap opery at times but if it's an interesting interesting period I think in in history is this um, yeah, yeah the I, pro- I, I guess thing. for the-
0: I guess for the modern English fan, it'd be almost sort of nostalgic to look back to a time when the the power behind the the, the thrones of the uh, great clubs were actually indigenous aristocrats as opposed to Russian oligarchs.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, and, and that's the and that's the thing. So you can what it, what it, what it shows in a way is that there's a very long way between. Um, Accepting that some players will be paid to play, um, and accepting that this is actually just a, a job that they do, um, and that they're entitled to be paid because the people are people are paying to watch them, um, it's a long way from that to um, the way the Premier League is now, where um, you know you have various owners of clubs implicated in um, all kinds of terrible, terrible business, even even the the occasional war crime. Um, and, and it's really become a plaything for sort of the worst kind of um, international deracinated global elite um, compared to <laughs> um, compared to good old-fashioned English aristocrat uh, who in the end still went to church on Sundays with the working men and so could understand their lives um, and understand how he could help them.
0: Yes, if Julian Fellows does nothing else, he specializes in nostalgia. Um, so what was the name of that again? It's called, it's called
2: The English Game.
0: The English Game. And, uh, where it's on she- Netflix. Yep, I think all of these things are on, on <laughs> Netflix, so it isn't everything. I'll, I'll settle down with my 65-inch. Um, Thank you, Sonny. Thank you, JB. Hi-Fi. That was our books and culture segment and this has been looking forward a big thank you to our listeners and viewers for bearing with us and if you would like to read andrew's article access any of the other great uh ipa stuff please do go to ipa.org.au to see how you can join donate read or get involved um big thank you to my fellow panelists chris berg thank you scott and andrew bushnell thanks scott And Josh Stranger in the remote control room. We'll be back with more looking forward next week.